Have you ever been at a friend's house in their kitchen and you correctly guess where something is? So you need a cup, the first place you look, ah, that's where the cups are. Amazing, right? Perhaps you would agree that there's a natural sense of where things should go. There's, you know, it makes more sense for this to go here than over here. Do you agree, right? Say yes, okay. Now hold that thought. A while ago, I was preparing a sermon at my fiance's house and I was deep in preparation. I was doing the Lord's work, my holy endeavor. And as I'm working away, I hear her ask me something. She says, can you get me a box of crackers from the kitchen? Why, of course, my dear, my love, my sweet, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, the apple of my eye, l'amour de la vie, mein schatz, it would be my joy to serve you. My words exactly. So I go to the kitchen, I go where the crackers normally are, and they're not there. It's baking supplies, sugar, spice, molasses. Hey, where are the crackers? Oh, I moved the crackers. I'm actually putting them in this part of the kitchen now. Why would you put them over there? That, that makes no sense. This is a good place for snacks, crackers, cookies, if you actually wanted to bake something once in a while. No, it's, it's my kitchen. I can put things wherever I want. Yeah, I know, that's, that's the problem. You can put them wherever you want, and where you want makes no sense. Okay, you don't have to be mean about this. No, no, I'm not being mean, I'm just not being nice. There's a big difference, okay? I'm treating you like an adult. No, you're not treating me like an adult, you're treating me like a philosophical robot. Well, guess what? You're marrying this philosophical robot. I haven't signed any papers yet, and... All of this because of a box of crackers. And it's silly, right? We're not arguing about something sinful that happened. This is just a disagreement in preference, how to organize the kitchen. And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Many passionate, heated arguments take place over things that are not sin-related. We disagree about how to set the table, how to load the dishwasher, how to pack the car, what kind of worship should we do on a Sunday morning? How contemporary or conservative should people dress? What ministry programs and partnering should be available? Are pastors, how should they dress on stage? How funny should they be? I'm talking about the, the chainsaw thing. You know what I'm talking about. It seems like disagreement is inevitable, right? Multiple people in multiple places with different ideas, preferences, standards of taste, opinions. It seems inevitable that we're going to disagree. But here's the clincher. Here's the problem, the predicament, the pickle, if you will. This is the paradox. Disagreement is inevitable. Yet, unity is commanded. Disagreement is inevitable, yet unity is commanded. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And I read that and I think, eh, you know, maybe Mother Teresa and Francis Chan can be the peacemakers because personally my spiritual gifts seem to lie and stir in the pot. Can I get an amen? The challenge is that conflict, when it's handled poorly, when it gets harmful and toxic, it can rob us of time, 
It can rob us of energy. It can rob us of opportunities. There's an opportunity cost. You could have been doing other things while you were wrapped up in the argument. And worst of all, conflict, when handled poorly, it robs us of our Christian witness to the world. We're told that we will be known by our love for one another. Yet, if we're wrapped up in arguing with each other bitterly and divisively, the world is not going to listen to us when we talk about the reconciling and redeeming love of Christ. Yet, the opposite of this is true. When conflict and disagreement is handled well, it's a platform for peacemaking to show the world what the love of God is, what the power of his spirit is. It's an opportunity to show all of these things. So peacemaking, it's actually, it's home turf for the Christian. It's our inheritance. It's our calling. Yet this seems to be the exception and not the rule of how believers interact with each other, right? It's kind of strange. So the question is this, how ought we, as God's people, go about handling conflict that isn't based upon sin. So this isn't, you punched me and stole my wallet. This is, I was up in the bathroom and you took my spot, right? And it's helpful to keep those things kind of distinct because if there is disagreement based upon sin, the Bible's really clear about how you go about that, about uh, mediating with the person through the church, about meeting with them, what repentance and reconciliation looks like, right? But today we're specifically looking at how do we act as peacemakers when we disagree about something that isn't sinful itself, right? How do we handle that well? And today we're going to be looking at a famous example of disagreement gone wrong between two titans of the early church. We're looking at the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, and we're going to be looking at this in Acts, Acts <laughs> chapter 15. So if you have a Bible or a phone, I actually encourage you to pull up the chapter because I'm kind of going to be referencing what happens beforehand. So it'll be easy for that to see. And while you're turning there, let me give a little bit of a background between these two people. This is some of the backstory of Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas was actually the person who vouched for Paul once he became a Christian. If you remember Paul's story, Paul used to be Saul. And Saul was a zealous Pharisee persecuting Christians and actively destroying the church. Saul met Jesus and Saul became Paul and went from destroying the church to actually building it up. Now Barnabas brought Paul to the apostles and said, hey, Paul believes the same gospel we do. He has received the same gospel we do and he preaches the same gospel that we do. So he vouched for him. After this, they went on several missionary journeys together. They planted many churches. And in Acts chapter 15, they're actually walking out of a victory at the Jerusalem Council. And the Jerusalem Council was a gathering of many members of the church. And they were trying to decide, how do you deal with, how do you handle, what are the proper steps of integration for Gentile converts? So someone who is not Jewish, that becomes a Christian. And it was decided that Gentile converts do not have to abide by all of the Levitical legal requirements. Specifically in this case, it was that Gentile converts 
do not have to be circumcised to be Christian, okay? That's very good news. And so Paul and Barnabas are walking out of this victory at the Jerusalem Council. On a side note, actually, the Jerusalem Council is an example of the apostolic leaders putting aside disagreements on theologically secondary issues for the sake of unity as well. That's a side point. Anyways, Paul and Barnabas are walking out of the Jerusalem Council. And you can imagine two friends celebrating this victory, sitting back around a campfire maybe. This is not in the text. I'm reading into it. They're having some hummus, some shawarma, Chinese food. I don't know. And, you know, having a good time. Paul says to Barnabas, hey, hey Barnabas, my, my stomach's feeling a little off. How's your stomach feeling? Yeah, you know, mine's a little bit off too. Maybe we should dunk. Have some wine to settle our stomachs. Follow me as I follow Christ. Anyways, I'll stop there. So (laughs) as this happens, a discussion breaks out. Acts chapter 15, verse 36. Start here with me. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia strengthening the churches. To give some context, John Mark was previously with Paul and Barnabas on one of their journeys in one of their cities. And at some point, he deserted them. He abandoned them. We don't know why. That's not clear. We also know this, that John Mark was actually related to Barnabas. So we also know that. And at this point, Paul says to Barnabas, let's return and visit some of the places where we planted churches. Let's encourage the believers, see how they're doing. Barnabas says, all right, let's take Mark with us again. Paul says, no way, not a chance. He deserted us. I don't want to be stuck in that position again. He's not coming with us. Barnabas says, no, let's give him another opportunity. Perhaps Paul says, we can give him another opportunity, but not here, not now. And it seems like they both have good reasons, right? Paul is focused on the ministry. He's focused on the work. And Barnabas is focused on the person. He's focused on Mark. And in both cases, it seems it's pretty reasonable. But the text indicates in the, in the original Greek that their disagreement was so passionate was so intense, it was incessant and unending to the point that they parted ways. And in some regards, I think it's good that this is recorded in the Bible. It shows us that our heroes are real people. They had real friendships, they had real disagreements, they had real pain, right? But it's also kind of discouraging for me to see this. Why? Well, if this is hard for Paul, this is going to be hard for me. It's kind of hard to fathom the level of spiritual horsepower that Paul operated with. Let me, let me give you an example. I believe in Acts 18, it says that people would steal handkerchiefs and aprons from Paul 
and they would take them and rub them on people who were sick and they would be healed, okay? That's the kind of spiritual horsepower that this guy operated with. And yet he also, in some ways, didn't navigate conflict perfectly. So we can learn from this interaction. Principles of peacemaking, what to do, what not to do. What, this is maybe a little, not a spoiler, it's perhaps um, a comforting note. Barnabas and Paul were later reconciled. And we also know that later on, Paul even asks for Mark to be sent to him. He says, could you please send him to him? He is of use to me. So we know that they were reconciled, but we can agree that things would have been better off had they not parted on such poor terms. So today, we're going to be looking at what does it mean to be a peacemaker? In his book, The Peacemaker, Ken Sand kind of defines peacemaking as the middle ground between two mistakes. It's the middle ground between peace breaking and peace faking. Imagine uh, like, like the, the peak of a mountain and we're walking along two cliffs. There's two fallacies. There's the fallacy of avoiding conflict, acting like it isn't there. That's peace faking. And there's the fallacy of peace breaking. We just steamroll the conversation, we crush our opponent, and we squash any opposition, right? And so the dust is settled, but there's broken bodies on either side. Let's look at both of those, and then we'll study the way of the peacemaker. So let's start with peace faking. Think of this like an escape response, right? These two mistakes actually kind of run parallel with flight or fight. These are things that we do whenever we're threatened. So peace faking, is faking the peace, wow, right? It's avoiding the conflict. It's acting like it isn't there. And maybe I'm doing this to protect my own comfort. Maybe I'm worried that I'm gonna get damaged if I actually address this thing or the relationship is going to be harmed. So I sweep it under the rug. And this is not talking about removing yourself from a situation to pray or leaving an abusive situation, not talking about either of those things. I'm talking about avoiding conflict and giving the appearance of peace, but it's actually cowardice in disguise. Now, perhaps in a church setting amongst believers, peace faking could be appealing because we've made a mistake in our understanding of things. Perhaps we're confusing two separate things. Perhaps we're confusing unity with uniformity. If we understand that believers are supposed to be at peace with one another, we think that, all right, being at peace means that everything is the same, but everything is the same is uniformity versus being on the same page is unity, being on the same team, working towards the same North Star as we navigate our disagreements. So that could be an appeal why Christians feel the need not to bring up any conflict because I want to keep the peace, but that's not peace at all, right? We're just avoiding healthy conflict and things could even fester or get worse in the meantime. So that's peace faking. Compare peace faking to peace breaking. Peace breaking is a fight response. Perhaps it has the illusion of confidence or strength or decisiveness, but it's really, it's a offensive response when conflict rears its head. And so I get in there, I get my way and I get out. I can crush my opponent, I can steamroll them. Also, peace breaking could be more passive. It could be uh, challenging the person's reputation, challenging their integrity, cutting their legs out from underneath them as well. So these are the two options, peace faking or peace breaking. Imagine it like this. 
After spending some time with some friends in your home, you've got some dirty dishes in your kitchen. And you could avoid those dirty dishes. You could act like they aren't there. And what happens? Well, things are going to get nasty, right? You're going to get some science experiments, a crockpot of unconsented kombucha. That's if you ignore your dishes. Or what's another way of dealing with your dishes? You could throw them out. You could throw them away. What's going to happen in that case? You're going to run out of dishes pretty soon, right? So we can avoid the dirty dishes. We can try and just get rid of the dirty dishes. Neither of those are helpful or healthy. Do you tend to lean more towards peace making and avoiding conflict? Do you tend to dive headlong in and crush people? But as we're going to look at, conflict is neither something to avoid or an opportunity to exercise our personal wills. Conflict is an opportunity for peacemaking. For peacemaking. And so we can look at this Acts 15 passage to provide a real-time diagnostic. We can diagnose ourselves with a few quick questions to actually check if we are engaging in this disagreement in a way of peacemaking or not. There's four quick questions, four quick things you can do to check. The first thing you check is this. Check your heart. Ask yourself this question. What am I fighting for? In this conflict, am I fighting for my own preference, my own comfort, my own pride? Am I trying to make things comfortable for myself? Am I trying to look good or smart? Or am I trying to find the best solution? Am I trying to help things move forward? Ask yourself this, what am I fighting for? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. So can we disagree for the glory of God? Charles Spurgeon, he said this. He said, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. God is glorified in you. God looks great when you are satisfied in him, when you treat him as the most satisfying thing. So in this argument, am I treating myself, my comfort, my preference, my pride as the thing of highest value, or am I trying to make God look great? Am I making his love, his peace, his patience, his grace, his goodness, the most satisfying thing? And because of that, I'm free now to perhaps not get my way. That's the first question. Check your heart. So perhaps Paul and Barnabas, when they're having this disagreement, they could have asked themselves, what are they fighting for? Perhaps Paul was offended and hurt that he was abandoned by John Mark. Perhaps Barnabas was embarrassed that his own family member left him, and now he feels the need to defend him. So this is a question they could have asked themselves. This is a question you can ask yourself. Check your heart. The second point, check your eyes. Check your eyes. Ask yourself this. How have I contributed to this disunity? Have I done anything to make things worse? Jesus says this in Matthew 7. He says, first, get the log out of your own eye before trying to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So he's talking about pride. He's talking about hypocrisy. Ask yourself this. Have I contributed to this conflict even 1%? 1%. And you say, well, 
Maybe. Okay. So if it's hypothetically possible that you've contributed 1% to the disunity, have you made things the tiniest, tiniest little bit a bit more tense than they should have been? Is that something you can apologize for? Can you come and say, hey, back there, you know, I didn't handle that as best as I could. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. This doesn't mean that you're wrong. This doesn't mean that it's your fault, but rather it helps us put the focus on things that we can control in this situation. What can you control? Your actions. That's it. We can't control how the other person responds. We can't control the outcome, but we can control what we do. The original language indicates in the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas that this was intense, incessant, unending, unyielding, passionate disagreement. So perhaps each one of them could have taken a moment. This could have been the point where reconciliation happened, or this can be the point where things continue onwards as well. Third point, check your ears. What can I learn from this person? Ask yourself this, are you listening to actually understand them? Or are you listening to wait for them to stop so you can jump in? Or are you listening to hear a loophole? Are you listening to hear a contradiction? I'm very guilty of this. When I'm listening, it's like I'm watching a verbal chess match happen in my head and I'm keeping track of, you made this point here, but you drew this inference and that's actually an invalid inference. And that first point that you're drawing the inference from is even false. So I disagree with you three different ways. Checkmate. And that is not helpful. That person doesn't feel heard. They're going to start pushing harder. They're going to get more worked up because of my inability to listen. So are you listening to this person? Are you trying to understand? Because God forbid, maybe you have something to learn in this interaction. Of course, hypothetically, hypothetically, maybe there's something to learn. So here's a a helpful tool, a helpful tip that I've read in all these marriage counseling books as I'm getting ready for that. Repeat the person's position back to them. Try and repeat it back to them. Okay, so if I'm understanding you correctly, you think we ought to do this. Is that correct? And they can hear and they can actually correct you, perhaps if you're wrong, and they can say, hey, yes, that's right. And perhaps they'll repeat your position back to you. So check your ears. Here's an advanced tip. Here's an advanced move. It's pretty rare. This is is just Sawyer talking now. It's pretty rare that in a disagreement, you're going to have two people that are equally matched in their verbal abilities. Sometimes someone is faster on their feet. Sometimes someone uses bigger words or is better at poking holes in arguments than the other person. And if that's you, you can usually run circles around someone, right? Even if you're wrong, even if you know you're wrong, you can probably still get your way. Here's the advanced method of check your ears. Are you able to hear the person out and actually help them make their own case? Are you helping them describe their position and they say, yes, that's what I mean? Are you able to help them with that? And why do I bring that up? Because this brings us back to point one, check your heart. Are you aiming for unity? Are you trying to find the truth and the best way forward? Are you trying to find peace, what God commands of us, or are you trying to get your own way? If you're trying to get your own way, there's no way you're gonna help your opponent. But if you're trying to bring peace and unity and love, You want to help them make their case because maybe you have something to learn. So that's just a side point, but something that I've been learning myself. Finally, check your feet. Check your feet. Is it time to take a step back? Now, this point is perhaps the most delicate. This is the most subtle of them all. 
But here's the final step, the final question, the final strategy, really, this is kind of the fail-safe. Being at peace may require making some healthy distance. In the case of Paul and Barnabas, they were unable to resolve their conflict to the point that they thought, okay, we must be at peace with one another. Maybe we need to reevaluate our proximity in order to keep the peace for now. This could be for five minutes to gather your thoughts, check yourself, run yourself through these questions. This could be taking a step back indefinitely, making space for things to heal. And depending on where you lean, on the peace-faking or the peace-breaking spectrum, right? You're going to hear this in different ways. If you're a peace-breaker, perhaps you're too quick to make space. You go, yep, I can't reason with this person. They're narrow-minded, pig-headed, you know, irrational, not listening to reason, illogical. They're not worth my time. I'm taking a step back. That's not what we're talking about here. Perhaps you're a peace-faker, and you're too willing to stay close in harmful relationships. And I can just release you of that burden that, hey, if this is harmful, if this isn't helpful, maybe you can make some space as well. And in that space, perhaps God can work. Perhaps God can heal. Perhaps God can reveal things to you. Perhaps God can reveal things to them as well on how to best make space. Now, that being said, as we take the step back with our posture, with our tone, with our body language, we can still model to this person that they're worthy of respect, that they're worthy of love, that we take them seriously, and that we are open to perhaps making peace in a closer form in the future. So that's the fourth point. It's the most subtle. It doesn't apply all the time. Check your feet. Perhaps it's time to make a healthy distance for the sake of peace. So now that we've talked through these four points of our diagnosis. Let's try applying it in real time. I want you to take a deep breath in, let it out. It's not magic, it's just healthy. And I want you to close your eyes. Actually, close your eyes, please. This will be worth it. With your eyes closed, I want you to imagine a person, the person that you tend to have these types of disagreements with. And if you can't imagine someone, perhaps Make someone up in your head, hypothesize someone that you, you know, in an imperfect world, you would probably have these types of disagreements with. And when you're imagining this, don't imagine it from the first person perspective. Imagine it from the third person perspective. Like you're looking down, you're watching this happen. And now press play and watch how things start to work out. Where does the conversation start to go south? And as it's going south, ask yourself first, check your heart. Where's my heart in this? Am I fighting to get my way? Am I trying to win this debate? Or am I treating this like an opportunity for peacemaking? Ask the second question. Check your eyes. How am I contributing to this? Of course, the person is illogical, narrow-minded, you know, pig-headed, stubborn, of course. But what are you doing to contribute? Third question. Check your ears. Of course, the person's wrong and mistaken. You know, they're crazy. They don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, of course, of course, of course. But is there something you can learn? Are you listening to understand? Or are you listening to engage? And finally, do you need to take a step back? And before deciding to make distance for peace, ask yourself, have I done everything that I can? Have I checked my heart? Have I checked my eyes? Have I checked my ears? And do I need to make space to breathe, to make peace, 
Do I need to keep space indefinitely? Is this someone that I can re-engage with? Is this someone that we can make peace with at a closer level one day? So these are some of the questions that we can ask ourselves to check if we're walking in the, the way of peacemakers. Because peacemakers are people who breathe grace. Peacemakers are people who breathe grace. And if everything in the body is operating as it should, then breathing comes naturally. Breathing out grace comes naturally, not even in the human body, but in the body of Christ as well. And so, you know, we rely on air to live on earth, and we also rely on grace to sustain ourselves in the kingdom of heaven. And so now we're operating, not only just breathing in, but you also breathe out. And that's how the peacemakers breathe out grace, because we've already breathed it in. And so now we're living in these rhythms of breathing, in these rhythms of life, in these rhythms of breathing out grace into our interactions with individuals and with the world in our day-to-day life. Peacemakers are people who breathe grace.